0: This is Chris Martin, the host of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Before we start...
1: What are we gonna do? 503. What so tackle the city? No. I don't have COVID. Enough. 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 Come on You can't do that. You can't Enough. that. Enough. can Enough. 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 no! Enough. No. No, You know where that um. Yes, so, so exactly, and and so his having, how important to you is your racial identity, essentially is the question. Um, the differences by partisanship are largest in America, uh, whereas in Britain and Canada the differences are, are generally much smaller. But in all cases, uh, this correlates highly to, I, you know, if people are asked, what's your ancestry, put it in this box, how, how attached are you to this? That by far the strongest predictor of, of racial identity uh, so I think I don't know I kind of part of this is to say we need to actually look at this thing more even-handedly and part of the problem does arise where you have
0: this asymmetric uh, treatment of people's attachments to these groups and you point to the incident at Georgia State University where a student tried to form a white student organization or a white student Union and similar occurrences and how there's a it tends to be stigmatized so in america i as an immigrant uh, initially when i came here i didn't see a problem with any students of any race including white students wanting to form a student union for people of their ethnicity but i've come to understand that historically speaking an organization that's whites only tends to be formed by people who are white supremacists maybe not violent white supremacists. So there's that uh, historical aspect, too, and you point to this interesting fact that we might be able to move toward an era where that isn't so and where the white race is just like any other race. It has its cultural identity. It can form groups. Do you think that's feasible?
1: Yeah, I I do think it is. I mean, I I sort of have more of a view that the, the ethnicity, which is ultimately about subjective myths, unless I think about objective characteristics in the long run, like skin color. So I'm talking essentially about a group that could essentially become multi-hued, if you like, through intermarriage. And and, and so I think that's the direction that I kind of would, would like to see this go. But I equally think that it... I don't think you can maintain asymmetries in terms of who you're going to allow to have an association. Now, you're right that, of course, the people who tend to then set these up, the only people who tend to set these up, will tend to be white supremacists. Um, but what you'd hope for is a bit like the English identity here in Britain, the English flag. It's kind of become appropriated more by people who aren't associated with the far right, even if the Union Jack had, went through that trajectory. So the hope would be that you might get it appropriated by. More kind of liberal minded, uh, less, you know, not supremacist groups. And then the, the, the issue is how do you ever get to that point if, you know, if the instant this thing is trotted out, you get an accusation of, of, of supremacy, right? It's a bit of a, a chicken and an egg. So I do think there has to, at some point, be uh, greater trust uh, extended to keep
0: some goodwill. And then I think maybe that can encourage a more open minded attitude towards things such as interracial marriage, for example. So what other solutions to polarization do you see, since we're on the topic of of solutions?
1: Well, I think this ultimately will only abate when you have, um, I mean, I think a significant assimilation into that ethnic majority group through intermarriage um, is is ultimately where I see it going, that the notion that you can... stigmatize this group that, that, that they will decline demographically and everything will be okay. I think he's, he's just not a recipe, I think, for getting rid of polarization. I mean, the populists could lose. There's no inevitability here. So they may lose, but you're going to have, I think Yasha Monk talks about this, you know, is that really what you want a society of where you have a resentful populist voting minority? Uh, yeah, okay, you don't have Donald Trump in office, but then you've still got a big problem. And you may have... The Senate may become the focus, as I mentioned in the book, in the U.S., of that sort of rear-guard action that prevents government from working normally. So I think you have to address the concerns of the ethnic majority group. And, I, and what I argue is one way of addressing them is to think through this idea of, well, actually your ethnicity in terms of collective memories and traditions can uh, can maintain itself arguably as a majority position, as a majority demographic And blurred over time with the intermarriage. I think that that is the model that I come up with. It, this idea of an inclusive majority, more inclusive than now in terms of skin color, but still that its traditions and memories are something that are valued and continue. But of course, not everybody has to be part of this. So there is a, a voluntary melting pot that people can, can join. But there's also the wider nation, which is politically defined, which is civically defined, and Um, individuals can connect to in their own way. So I also have this concept of multivocalism which says this is not the idea of a hymn sheet. Everybody must you know, attach through the Constitution of the U.S. and the American creed or the French Republic, but actually you can find your own way. It's like a menu. You can choose your own route. And maybe for you, the U.S. is a multicultural country and it's a nation of immigrants, and that's what you love about it. That's great. That's fine. I'm against this idea of a one-size-fits-all. National identity, more of a kind of menu where people can adapt, can pick the symbols that, that matter and mean something to them, um, and it won't necessarily be the same symbols as someone else. So it may be that Western settlements in Plymouth Rock matter to one person, and on the other hand, the African American experience and multiculturalism matters to another person. And as long as no one's saying this is the only way to be American, I don't think there's a problem with having those different. Narratives. As long as everybody is identifying to
0: the same. Thing. To some degree, it's like being in a city, a large city where people practice multiple religions, but don't go to war over it.
1: Well, there's a difference, I say, between multiculturalism, which is is identifying back to another homeland uh, and encouraging that, which I'm not in favor of, and what I call multivocalism, which which is just identifying with a different version of Americanism. So. It's, it's not the same as identifying with uh, your roots in Somalia or France and, and that being a focus of your identity, but it's more identifying, let's say, with if you're in a city that's multicultural, you identify multicultural diversity as what you value about America. Uh, that's fine, and that's, but that's a different version of Americanism than someone who values the landscape and Western settlement. Uh, so it's different symbolic configurations and symbolic and mythic signatures, but they are all about the same flag, the same country. And that's a different thing from identifying with different flags, different countries. Which, by the way, I think people should be free to do. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be free to do that. But in terms of what, what I think might be good, useful to encourage
0: uh, is this more this multivocalist uh, approach. And going back to the topic we started with, populism, one of the concerns, as you said, is, is cultural change. But in the U.S., we've seen much more concern over immigration from Latin America and change due to immigration in particular from Mexico, and not so much because of immigration from Asia, even though Latin American, or at least Mexican immigration in particular, has plateaued. So there's actually more immigration, well, the rate um, is accelerating more noticeably from Asia. So what do you think of as as the tension there?
1: essentially in the U.S. once the Immigration Act of 1965 opened things up again, um, the predominant flow was coming from Latin America, especially Mexico. Um, There was a significant uh, undocumented component to that, and so this connection between Latin American immigration in illegality becomes established, it becomes correlated in the the data from the early 1990s. Um, And so that becomes the established template. The Asian immigration tends to be legal it tends to be middle class or higher skilled and so it doesn't have the same connotations and so yeah that and of course we start to see a shifting in the sources from mexico to other latin american countries particularly central america if you take post-2014 in particular Um, and so i don't think it's the fact that there are more mexicans leaving than arriving is not going to affect that picture in people's heads uh, however, I also don't think it's totally unrelated to what's happening at the border. so the fact that in this last year there was a, a doubling of the number of people coming to the border uh, I think is germane for the for the salience of that issue I mean immigration now amongst Republican voters I think is 35 to 40 percent says they're talk- the top issue facing the country which is unprecedented and really what we saw in Britain prior to the brexit vote amongst leave voters. So that level of salience is something that, yes, is is partly a factor of, of Fox News and Donald Trump, in, but is also connected to, I think, real events at the border. Um, now, you're right that in the future, with Asian migration becoming the dominant flow, how is that going to then change the politics? And that's an interesting question. I mean, if we look at other countries, in New Zealand, where in 2017 the Labour government was elected in coalition with the populist the right party called New Zealand First. The promise there was to reduce and cut immigration in half. Uh, and this was mainly Asian immigration. So, and, and also in Australia with Pauline Hansen, and to some extent in Canada with the People's Party too, I think Asian immigration would be the main uh, issue that, the, you know, that, that tends to drive opinion. So I, I don't rule out the possibility that in America at some point in the future this could be the issue, but the legacy of those decades of particularly undocumented immigration has simply fixed uh, a view in the public mind that focuses more on Black Americans, as well more more recently on Islam, but that's to do more with uh,
0: the migrant crisis and perhaps terrorism. Right. As an Asian immigrant in the South, I I do feel like there's a certain older generation of white Southerners, and there's a segment of them uh, that's perhaps suspicious of both Asians and Mexicans, but among... Younger generation, including middle-aged people, I feel like there's there's definitely a contrast, which is it interested in me as an immigrant. Um, our time is almost up, but I'd like to talk about your PX report with Tom Simpson on academic freedom in the UK. What have you found there, and what are your recommendations?
1: Yeah, so we we uh, ran a survey; it was about 500 undergraduate students, um, and we what we find essentially is that there is a significant. Uh, base of uh, support for free speech and academic freedom amongst students. Uh, but there's also a significant group that prioritizes emotional safety over academic freedom. And What we really wanted to do was to set out a bunch of concrete situations. So Jordan Peterson, for example, being forced out from his visiting professorship at Cambridge or Jermaine Greer being no platform. We wanted to know what people's views are on these concrete issues because often there is a support in the abstract for academic freedom. But once you hit it against emotional safety, you start to see a, a division. And uh, it's partly gendered, but it's certainly what we see as a, as a range of views. In terms of our recommendations, I mean, I think, I I guess we'll be coming up with view that, that, at least in Britain, where uh, higher education is, is government-run, right, that a greater degree of, of essentially that that some sort of protection for academic freedom probably needs to be institutionalized. Um, This notion of academic freedom champions, so there are equality and diversity champions in the universities, uh, but that you would need to have a sort of separate institutional architecture for oversight of academic freedom. In addition, I think it's worth thinking about Uh, Government specifying more closely what the definition of some of these terms, such as sexism, racism, transphobia, are in order to prevent uh, actors who would expand the meaning of those terms in such a way that they would then shut down academic freedom. So those are just some ideas. I'm just not sure that the system will fix itself without some sort of um, government uh, regulation of some kind. Not intrusive, but some sort of specification of of the meaning of some of these terms.
0: Is there legislation pending in Parliament at the moment about any of these things?
1: There's been more movement, I would say, in this administration than perhaps there has been in the past. What happened in the past was there was guidance issued to universities, but it was, again, any guidance that's too non-specific that allows loopholes, those loopholes will be taken. So it didn't stop the no-platformings or any of the academic freedom problems. I think this government is more serious, and I, uh, I have some contacts in number 10, which is the policy unit. And they are, I think, interested in trying to sort of further some of these, these ideas about trying. You know, how do you close the loopholes in these definitions that allow essentially activists to shut down speakers they don't like by, by defining them as offensive and, and, and harmful to the institution and so forth? There has to be a way of, I think, just becoming a bit more granular uh, on some of these definitions in a way that would so take away that root because any any opening, it's a bit like water. It'll always find the the point of least resistance. You need to kind of you need to have a more watertight set of procedures that will prevent uh, the emotional safety and, and harm
0: trope from being used to shut down academic freedom. Well, Eric, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great having you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much.